Hi, my name is Jessica Green, and today we are listening to the Health and Wellness Podcast. Our guest today is Lily Krenzman from Human Resources. She's the Director of Human Resources and also the Title IX Coordinator. Today we're going to learn a little bit about what Title IX is, how students can access it, how it can be helpful to them, and hopefully clear up any misunderstanding or questions people have. So welcome, Lily. Thank you very much, Jess. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it's important. I think it's there's a lot about Title IX that's so confusing, and so I thought if we could just have a session where we just learn a little bit more about it to help enlighten students. I thought that would be a good idea. So Absolutely happy to help. Awesome. Thank you. So first, um, might you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role here at Stonehill? Okay. Yes. Um, I am the Director of Human Resources as well as the Title IX Coordinator, which means I oversee the process um, and the investigators report to me as well. It's sort of a dotted line. Um, previously, in my previous employment, I was a Title IX investigator, so I have some experience being on that side of it as well. Wow, that's helpful to have the behind the scenes on both sides, yes. just so you understand what happens. Great. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so Title IX, I feel like we've heard that term before, but it sounds um, so confusing. A lot of people might not even understand what it is. Could you explain a little bit about what Title IX is and what it means here at Stonehill? Sure. So so Title IX is part of the Civil Rights Acts of 1964. Um, it's really a comprehensive federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in any federally funded education setting um, or activity. So it's similar to Title VII, which prohibits discrimination in hiring and employment practices, um, but it's geared specifically towards students. Awesome. So in terms of how it, it applies to students, the legislation eliminates sexually-based discrimination um, to ensure that all students, regardless of gender, have access and uh, equality in education. It offers a wide range of protections, and those include things from athletics to admission to housing and also to sexual harassment. Yeah, and that's barely been big, I guess, over the last 10 years, especially with um, previous administrations having um, the Dear Colleague letters and encouraging um, colleges to really take on the topic of sexual assault um, prevention in colleges. So yes. this has kind of been a charge for colleges for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. I think mm. the, the really it started mostly in the athletics field yeah. and, and women not having the same rights as men yeah. in athletics and in the educational setting, but it has certainly grown since mm -hmm. then. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so what would be a reason why someone would contact the Title IX coordinator? So oftentimes it's for... It it's really turns out to be something if they're questioning the process um, or if they're not sure if something actually falls under the Title IX, whether it be our policy or the, the law itself. Um, so they're coming to ask questions. They're looking for guidance. Um, as an example, someone if someone tried to touch or kiss a student, um, but they're really not sure if that falls under Title IX, maybe they didn't you know, go through with that, um, or if they hear of a situation that happened to perhaps a friend, they might want to come forward and just ask some questions before they actually report it. So the tendency is to come to me when they're not sure about reporting, mm -hmm. although some have come to me and specifically reported as well. So. Yeah. 
That's an important distinction, yeah. So I know we're going to talk about our resources later on and what to do if you suspect um, you or someone you know has been um, involved in a sexual assault. We'll definitely get into that a little bit later, but that's good to know that there's um, some clarifying information and that people can still um, contact you either just to ask questions to clarify um, or just for guidance. Absolutely. Um, So if someone did want to contact you um, or um, contact anyone within Title IX, how would they make a report? How would, if someone wanted to make a Title IX report, how would mm-hmm. they go about doing that? So there are a number of different ways. Certainly, as I mentioned, they could come to me mm-hmm. directly. And my, my information is on the Stonehill directory. Yes. But more importantly, there is a Title IX resource section of our website that mm-hmm. you can access from sort of the bottom left of our front web page. Um, and there you'll see the policy and all the resources mm-hmm. and specifically the people who are involved in this process. Uh, they, there are two uh, deputy coordinators as well. One is Cindy McDonald, who um, is in athletics, and Michael, Michael Labella, who is in community standards. Um, certainly campus police, there, there are so many many resources. Um, there are a number of ways to report. You can make a phone call and talk to us. You can send an email. You can fill out an anonymous report or fill out a report with your information. Um, and all of this is located under that helpful links um, awesome. under Title IX. And I know I've even searched, if you go to the search bar in the website, yes. you can just search Title IX or even sexual assault and all this information will pop up. Absolutely. So. Yep. Great. We try to make it as easy as possible. <laughs> Um, another term that we hear on campus sometimes is the term mandated reporter. Um, yes. Sometimes that comes up when we talk to our students about things like confidentiality. Could you just explain what a mandated reporter is? Yes. Generally, anyone in the institution who hears of something that might be a violation of Title IX is required by law to report that um, to, again, one of the folks that we just discussed, myself, um, any of the deputy coordinators. Um, but any employee on campus, with a few exceptions that I know we'll talk about, are required to give us that information by law. Yeah. Uh, so it's similar to when a child goes into an emergency room and there's suspicion of abuse. There, you know, the doctors are required to uh, contact uh, children's services. It's it's similar to that in yeah. in the fact that you don't really have a choice, which sometimes makes that easier for people. Yeah. Um, to know that they can't decide, um, but they must do it. Yeah, and I think that's important to note, too. So if a student were, you know, to have a conversation with um, maybe their professor, maybe they're um, feeling comfortable and they're um, talking about an issue and something pops up, just to know that, you know, faculty or a mandated reporter, if a student was in a residence hall and they were having a conversation with an RA, knowing that that person's a mandated reporter, um, I know in a little while we'll talk about confidential and private resources, um, but I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think sometimes that's confusing. It it is, and I think it's confusing for both the person who's reporting something as well as someone who's receiving the information because I think the initial instinct is to try to keep things confidential, but in reality, um, not only are they required to do it, but I think it's also the right thing to do as well. It's in the best interest for everyone. Absolutely. So kind of talking a little bit more about um, sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, any concerns if someone has um, either experienced that or knows someone who's experienced that, if someone wanted to um, uh, make a report, you mentioned that there are multiple people and ways they could do that. Do you want to just maybe clarify a little bit more about how to do that or 
um, like if a student had been sexually assaulted or if they had um, a friend that had been reporting a sexual assault, what are some avenues? Let's um, just you know, give some options. Sure. sure. Um, so there are a number of different options for reporting. Um, as I had mentioned, um, well, we talked a little bit about the private and confidential, yes. but in in terms of, you know, where the report can go through, again, it can go through, you know, an actual report. They can speak to an RD. Mm-hmm. Um, they can mm-hmm. speak to an RA. Mm-hmm. They can speak to their professors. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, that information is going to come to our team mm-hmm. um, in those terms. And so at that point, we would reach out to whoever the reporting party is mm-hmm. um, to do that. So um, really, you know, ho- however the student feels more comfortable mm, coming yeah. forward is the best way. This also applies to faculty and staff of as well. Of course, um, absolutely. Often in colleges you don't see as much of it mm-hmm. with the faculty and staff, but it does apply to them as well. And so, you know, we want to make sure most importantly that someone is taken care of. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. the key mm-hmm. is if they have any kind of physical harm mm-hmm. or mental harm, mm-hmm. we want to remove that them from that traumatic situation. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that they're getting the support that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whether they need to go to health services mm-hmm. or campus police, mm-hmm. or if it's off campus, um, they have another other number of other options mm-hmm. that they can reach out to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can specifically go into those if you'd like, but there are a number of, of options for them. And again, mm-hmm. there are those pro- those things that we consider private. Yeah, um, and those, yeah let's uh, talk about those now. Yeah, you want to talk yeah, about sure. the private? Sure, okay. So really in terms of privacy, because our job is to investigate what has happened, mm-hmm. um, we try as much as we can to keep the situation private as an investigation is happening. Um, when we first find out about a report, um, we keep it sort of within our own team. Um, but the reporting party will generally go to community standards to file, you know, at some point, whether they filed a written report or not. And then that information, they will assign an investigator. Usually they speak with me first. We, we assign an investigator. Uh, we try to find the right investigator for the, the party involved to make sure that they're comfortable. Um, and then from there, it you know, again, we're keeping this all as private as we possibly can. When they get into the investigation stage, it becomes a little bit more difficult, right, because now they may have to reach out, obviously, to the responding party. Then they may have to reach out to witnesses who had witnessed the situation. So the privacy piece of it is harder for us to control as that happens. We do encourage people who are involved in the process to keep it private um, out of respect for both parties. But, you know, often there is a little bit of... You know, people talk, people, people hear. talk. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I yeah. understand that. Yeah, College, um, it's a small area. It is, yeah. and I think it's also mm. it can be traumatic for even those people who witnessed it or, or you know, felt any kind of connection to either party. So mm-hmm. I think that that's part of the problem. So, um, so many of ours, but there are services on campus that are confidential, um, and those include the counseling center. So any of our counselors, health services for students. Um, 
our certified athletic trainers mm-hmm. are considered um, confidential. Campus police is considered confidential. Actually, I believe it's campus priests. The, Sorry, yes, campus priests. Yeah, yeah. uh, campus police, yeah, our yes. first responders. Sorry. That's yes. okay. <laughs> the campus clerk. So clergy. they have to be actually clergy Clergies, as yeah. opposed to like our campus ministers who absolutely. aren't clergy. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Sorry about that. And then those are all. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then off campus, there are actually several um, confidential resources, mm-hmm. which include local hospitals like yes. Brockton, their emergency room, Wharton Hospital. Um, there are some other resources that are described very in very great detail yeah. on the web page as a well. A local crisis center. Yep, absolutely. a new day, mm-hmm. um, Victim Rights Law Center. There's mm-hmm. uh, Catholic Charities. There's a number of yeah. other options if people want to keep it confidential. Sometimes they want to start out keeping it confidential, yeah. and then, you know, then they, I think, get the strength to come mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. Um, about what has happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, first of all, anytime you go through anything traumatic, um, it just takes a little bit of time to kind of wrap your head around it. Mm-hmm. But I think the number one thing that we're trying to relay is that there's a variety and multi-level of supports, both on yes. and off campus. Um, and the best thing is to, um, you know, reach out and try and get the person, you know, safe and healthy and, and to, um, you know, do whatever they feel is best for them. Um, so whether it's, you know, it immediately happened, you know, mm-hmm. the night before, or if it has something that happened last semester or even a year ago, um, just know that those supports are still always there. Yes, they are. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, we even have former students mm-hmm. who come back to us that things may have happened to four or five, six mm-hmm. years ago. And, you know, the the feeling is that they haven't had an opportunity to prop yeah, process and, and, and have that closure. So mm-hmm. we always reach out to them still because it also tells us a lot about maybe what we need to do differently mm-hmm. here um, or, or we can look at how we've improved since that time um, in, in that time and space. Oh, yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, so I know we talked a little bit about um, the ways that students can report. Um, I'll just go back a little bit for that. So there is on the Title IX website um, an online instant report form, and that could be for anything simple as um, I felt maybe I was um, sexually harassed. Uh, I think I was sexually assaulted, but I, I want to only give um, a certain amount of information, but I still want to remain anonymous. Um, then there's also um, reaching out to someone right on campus, like if something had just happened and I wanted to call campus police or mm-hmm. um, and have emergency uh, medical services come to me, or if I'm waking up the next day and I'm not sure what's happening and I want to, you know, disclose and talk to someone. It could be, um, you know, someone in residence life. It could be um, a going to health services to make an appointment and check in with them. Um, so there's multiple ways to um, have that conversation. And just knowing the difference between those, you know, private resources, which is sounds like it's pretty much anyone on campus except for those four confidential resources, right? So Absolutely. confidential is the, yep. you know, clinicians and counseling services, the clinicians and health services, the campus priests and the athletic trainers. So that mm-hmm. is also, a, I think, a, a soothing thing to know that if I just need to kind of wrap my head around stuff and have that safe space to have that conversation with someone, maybe that confidential resource is a good place to start and that knowing that there's other resources on campus. Um, I know that we also have this great SHARE program. I'm going to plug that because yes. I do a help with that. SHARE is an acronym. It actually stands for Sexual Harassment Assault Resource and Education and these are actually advisors that are specially trained. They're staff members on campus, and they're really there just to help guide students through the process, both parties, um, the, I'm not sure, reporting or the 
what is the other term for it? Um, uh, reporting and responding and responding parties. parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're we're here to help our students um, and help walk them through. And I think just the unknown can be so scary. And sometimes having someone like a shared advisor there to help um, guide you or answer questions or offer additional resources you might not have thought about, like academic services or other accommodations, um, is really helpful. So again, you can find all of that information about Share on our website. Um, but please know there are another resource that are really helpful. Um, I think this might be a good place to add also that through the investigative process, um, both parties can have an advisor with them during the interview process. And so that person really isn't allowed to contribute to Mm -hmm. the conversation, but they're there as um, a support for the person. They might be there to discuss at the end outside of the room, hey, you didn't mention this or... um, you shouldn't have mentioned that or, you know, whatever it may be, but they're there just really more for, you know, I would say sort of the image of holding their hand through Mm -hmm. the process. And that can be a share advisor. It can be a family member. It can be a friend. It can be an attorney. Mm -hmm. Um, So any number of people can, you know, be that advisor. We like to limit it to one advisor just because it it becomes a little overwhelming for everyone. Um, and some people choose to come alone. Um, but, you know, the advisor is a really good option, and I think the share advisors are particularly helpful. Yeah, they've been great over the years, I know. Um, maybe uh, let's talk a little bit more about the um, process and some um, things that occur on campus, such as the emails that go out. I know sometimes there's always, um, you know, different feedback from students about the campus alerts that go out. Um, Can you explain a little bit about why those go out and about the information that's in there or not allowed to be in there? Because I think sometimes that's always a confusing thing for students. Yes, yeah. So um, we're required to send out what's called a timely warning. And that timely warning is if we find out within a certain period of time that there may be something happening on campus that could impact others on campus. So, for instance, if, you know, someone comes to us two weeks, three weeks after something has occurred, It's obviously not a timely warning, Um, but if we find out something within the first 24 or 48 hours, we we are required really to send out a timely warning. That warning generally comes from campus police. They're made aware of the situation, and it lets us know that there might be someone on campus who shouldn't be here or for people to, you know, to have a buddy when they're walking from uh, one building to the next at night or or something along those lines. Um, Generally, there's not a um, a real risk to the general public when we're sending out those, um, you know, those warnings because it's really something that's happened between two people. Um, Often there's some type of relationship between those two people. But in a case where that might not be true where maybe someone has come onto campus and assaulted someone. Uh, We want to make sure campus police knows right away so that we can make sure we get a no trespass in place or um, if it is someone on campus we often put a no contact in place. So it's really important for us to know that as quickly as possible and many folks are you know on call 
24-7 at different times to make sure that that information gets out there and that we can do that. It's also required by law, as I mentioned, um, as part of the Clery Act um, as well. So we're required to send out those timely warnings. And it's so funny. I know a little bit behind the scenes of how um, challenging it can be to write those emails. And I know, um, you know, students always want more information, but I, it must be hard to try and want to keep the privacy of the people involved so that they don't feel like they have a big, mm-hmm. you know, X on their back and people are, are talking about them. So that must be a real challenge trying to figure out what to put in and how much to say. It, it is, and I think, you know, making sure that people don't overreact if it's not something to overreact about, but also making sure that we're keeping everyone safe, um, I think, is critical. And often, at the time of the timely warning, we don't necessarily know exactly what has happened. You know, we're at the very, very beginning stages, and we might have a big picture idea of what's gone on, but often we don't know specifically. So even if we could or would share that information at that time we may not have very much of it and as you said you know we do try to keep things as private as possible so um you know that's kind of a key around all of this because we don't want to frighten off the person who's reporting this to us um and you know or to frighten anyone else to be honest but we also want to want people to be aware it's really important that you're just aware of what's going on on campus absolutely and i even heard students say you know why isn't there a follow up what happened with that can we have some you know we want oh, students want to know everything we're know. in the day and age where everything's at your fingertips and you can have all the information you want but i do often hear students say oh what's the follow up what happened what nothing happened and usually there's a lot that has happened just we're not at the liberty right to say or it's not our business to share that information, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I having the human resources hat on, um, you know, often we, you know, we are not allowed to share any private information about an employee unless they sign a document that says that we can. So it's almost similar in that <clears throat> to that in nature, um, except that we do have to share the information with some people on campus. Um, and in particular, you know, any witnesses or responding reporting parties need to know as much as possible. But, um, you know, there is some information that just needs to be held private, especially in the case of an investigation, because we don't want anyone to make any assumptions about what the outcome of that case may be. And that's, I'm so glad you brought that because that was going to be my next question too. I know over the years, um, the investigation process has changed and now with, you know, new, um, administration, we've heard new federal administration, we've heard that there are changes yet again. So, um, is there any idea about like a, a time frame about the investigation process? I, I know it used to be wrapped up in what, 30 or 60 days and now mm-hmm. it's a little different because sometimes that might confuse students. Um, and I know you can't, nor, you can't really say exactly, but it is a little bit more, a little longer than it has been in the past. Is that right? Yes, that is yeah. correct. Um, the goal in the past has always been to have the entire process done within 60 days. But there were more regulations put in place, and I'm actually going to sort of read them because they're very specific and different for each step in the process. But um, a charge letter needs to be sent um, to both parties, both the reporting and the responding party, within Um, five business days of the initial meeting with either or both of the parties. Um, The investigation commences no sooner than three days after that issuance of that that charge letter so that there's time for the person or people to process what they've just received because, you know, sometimes it's a shock or um, they need some time to say, okay, I'm going through with this. Now I have to, you know, really put my 
you know, my hat on and, and just move forward. Then the parties are given um, seven days to respond to the investigative report. So that's there's a big chunk of time missing in the middle there, right? So uh, much of it depends on time of year, where students are. So, you know, starting by the investigator meeting with the reporting party, um, that can sometimes be difficult to coordinate around students' classroom schedules or anything along those nature. That Winter nature. break, spring break, Winter summer break. Winter break, <laughs> spring break, summer, summer break have been very challenging, absolutely. Um, and so then, you know, then time to meet with the reporting party, time to meet with witnesses. We've had some cases where there are no witnesses. We've had some cases where there might be two or three. And we've had other cases where we've had 12. So, um, and you can imagine trying to coordinate, you know, 14 students can be a little bit challenging with everyone's schedule. So that that we try to keep that process um, within that that 60-day time frame. Sometimes it's a little less. Sometimes it could be a little bit more um, as well. So it it can be a a little bit challenging. So they have, after that actual process, they have those seven days. Um, And then the Associate VP for Student Affairs, the Dean of Students, in our case, Kevin Piscadlo, um, he has five days um, within accepting the report uh, for, for notifying the parties of the outcome when he accepts the report. So he has, once he receives the report from uh, the investigator, he then has five days to determine whether he's accepting the report as it is. Perhaps he has more questions. He'll reach back out to the investigator or investigators. Um, and then within five days of the acceptance, so this is good, I'm ready to move forward, he needs to notify the parties in, involved, which would be the reporting party and the responding party, obviously not the witnesses. Um, and then either party, again, um, has to notify um the vice president for student affairs, Pauline Dabrowski, if they want to appeal. And then Pauline um, will notify them within 20 days of her choice um, in terms of the appeal, whether or not the appeal is going to go through or not. So this could really take anywhere from 30 days to 100 days, um, depending on, you know, the, the... I guess, the complication of the particular issue. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Mm -hmm. It's a a real challenge. Yeah. That can be an entire semester for someone, and that's what you mentioned earlier about having some resources. Resources. I think that's so so important. um, I can. I have some power to be able to talk to um, academic services, for them to make some type of an accommodation Mm -hmm. for classes, Um, in terms of more time to get work done, ability to do work some do some work outside of the classroom, um, get some extra help and support. So there are a number of things that we can do to help ease the burden mm-hmm. um, for either or both of the students involved uh, yeah. to to make it a bit easier for them yeah. in terms of the academics. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, and we also um, through the Health and Wellness Center offer a lot of um, great support resources. We partner with a new day and um, offer um, counseling, um, group counseling for students who um, have been sexually assaulted and are at a point where they're ready to, um, you know, do some mm-hmm. group therapy to get better. Obviously, we have our individual counseling. We have our on and off campus resources. Also, sometimes students don't want to, you know, go through the Stonehill um, resources. They want to use outside ones, and that's totally fine too. We have a lot of different options. 
Um, and a little bit later, I'll talk about some of our um, prevention tips because from a prevention mind frame, I love to always um, plug some of our ways that we can get more involved and kind of take this head on. Absolutely. um, Just a question. What are the different options um, if a student um, is, uh, they're found either I'm not the words are right guilty not guilty what so yeah right, so, oh, what right. are what are the different options Cause one, I know sometimes students are always thinking oh what will happen are students still on campus are they off campus are there you know restrictions do they um so if you can talk a little more about the different um options that are sure. there after an investigation is completed okay yeah absolutely so obviously if it involves two students on our campus Um, The first thing that we will do almost immediately is we'll put a no-contact order in place between the two students. So both the reporting party and the responding party are not allowed to contact each other. We are a small campus. Occasionally, those two students may live in the same residence hall. They may be in a class or two with each other. Um, But with that no-contact in order, we, again, provide whatever support we need to, to, you know, make it easier for them to not see each other. So that's really the first thing that we'll put in place. If it involves someone off campus, we'll put a no trespass order in place, not a, that, which means that person can't you know, c- cross our boundaries and come onto campus. So that's certainly part of the process. Yeah, and then just um, are they, if uh, someone is found responsible, do they yes. still stay on campus or are they not allowed to be a student here? Yes, yeah, so once we've completed the investigation, um, depending on the outcome and what, you know, that there's, I don't, if anybody has seen the policy, it's several pages long. And so in terms of what piece of the policy did they violate? Um, and so depending on what part of the policy they violated and the nature of the incident will sort of determine what happens at the end. And that can be anything from just that, that the person We've determined that there's no evidence to prove that the person did this um, in terms of the responding party. Um, Or it could, you know, it could move all the way up to, yes, they did this. Uh, We call it the preponderance of evidence. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, it's a preponderance of evidence standard. So it's sometimes more difficult, right? It's not like going to a court of law where you're guilty or not guilty, right, one way or the other. The preponderance of evidence is does all the evidence point to this happened and it was a violation of our policy or does it point to there's not enough information to determine so it's not generally you know guilty not guilty right so it's which I think sometimes for responding parties can be difficult because there isn't a clear you know I'm I'm not guilty um, of this particular issue and I think that does make it you know difficult But depending, again, on where that falls, it can be anything from some general education, you know, perhaps some some training we offer, as you know. (laughs) Um, A lot of things here that our students can attend. Um, Sometimes we ask them to write something about what happened and, uh, you know, to learn more about what the policy is, what the law is, why someone might not do something like this. So that's generally part of what the dean of students will do with the student is to work on that and and follow through with them. And I could see that more for if there was like an inappropriate touch at a party. I could see someone, you know, having maybe that as a potential consequence. Absolutely. Um, But I could definitely see that not as if someone had been charged with sexual assault. That's not something that our campus would have done. So sexual assault, if the preponderance of evidence points us toward the fact that this is more likely than not to have happened, 
generally the student will be released from the school. Yeah, yeah. And again, we, you know, even in that case, we will try to provide some level of support to that student in terms of hear what your options are outside of Stonehill, you know, just give them a little, you know, a little support and, you know, what are are their next steps, but we have to do the right thing here to protect our students. Absolutely. No, this is a very difficult thing. And unfortunately, this is something where there's, um, it's, uh, challenge and a, and a uh, problem and an issue for everyone involved and there's uh, even when there's um some type of like clarity and um the response that maybe someone wants it still hurts a lot of people involved so Absolutely. yeah so i think um moving back to uh just reminding everyone about the different options here on campus um in terms of um prevention um, I find that with college students, we have a lot of really great um, trainings, but they don't always attend. So this mm-hmm. is my shameless plug to please, if these um, topics speak to you and you want to learn more, um, I just really challenge you to get involved. Um, we have some really great programs here um, that are state-of-the-art that we would love more student participation, student feedback. Um, and some of them are the bystander, bringing in the bystander program. Um, this is, bystander is something that um, many colleges uh, across campuses do um, that help students identify potentially risky situations and then how to safely intervene and respond. Um, The idea is that there are many people involved who can have a positive influence on a potentially risky situation. And I will say here at Stonehill, we have multiple levels of bystander. So the bringing in the bystander for sexual assault prevention is a really great one, I think, for college students to learn about um, what are the risky situations that can occur, um, whether it has to do with like um, alcohol or being in a, uh, a certain setting or um, how someone's communicating consent or not communicating consent and how someone is receiving that. Um, so we have really that great program. Our student athletes, um, we have a wonderful program just specifically for student leaders and student athletes called MVP, Mentors in Violence Prevention. Um, last year, NCAA did actually require that all student athletes receive um, annual training on sexual assault prevention. We had actually been doing it for years before, so we're definitely ahead of the curve. Go Stonehill. Um, but this is a wonderful training that um, teaches leadership skills and helps our student athletes really be excellent role models on campus in terms of um, interpersonal communication. Um, We have some really fabulous bystander programs here that talk about um, diversity and inclusion and social justice issues. Mm -hmm. We have Lead for Courage, which is a really great program. I know all our incoming freshmen will be um, going through that and a lot of other groups on campus, but um, that's another program that teaches how to respond to like a bias incident or how to be more inclusive or how to respond to um, potential things of ignorance. And then our faculty and staff are also going through many trainings, as are many people. This is another thing I always tell our students. When you graduate Stonehill, you're going to enter the working world, and you're going to need to know how to you know, communicate with other adults and other people. Um, and a lot of companies are now requiring their employees to go through these trainings um, to know what sexual harassment is, how to... Um, you know, talk and communicate um, in a group setting, what is allowed and not allowed at work. So um, this will not be the first or last time that our students will encounter these trainings and our faculty and staff are going through them too. So this is the new norm. We have definitely over the past couple of years with the Me Too movement and everything that's been happening with all of the high profile media cases, 
the topic of sexual assault prevention and how um, to empower people to um, take a stand, to speak up, and to know that their voice is important and should be heard. I think if I could just relay that through this, um, you know, podcast, let them know that if someone has experienced um, sexual assault um, and they're out there and they want to reach out, um, these are some great resources we talked about. Our Title IX resource on our website explains all of this. Um, the Health and Wellness Center door is always open, as is uh, Human Resources um, door. And then um, just uh, that this is everyone's issue on campus. This isn't just a woman's issue or this isn't just an issue for college students. This is everyone's issue on campus. Um, And we all take a part in helping make this place a safe and inclusive environment. We, um, I actually talk to our parents during orientation. I say, this is our family. This is our home. So your children are leaving your home and they're coming to their Stonehill home. And that's actually how they feel. I talked to a lot of alum and they still talk about their Stonehill families. So um, how do we make this um, a safe and inclusive place um, during the day, during the evening, on weekends um, for your four years here? So, yeah, this is great. Did you have any other comments or things you wanted to no, add? No, I, I think maybe just adding to, you know, knowing what we're asking students to do in terms of learning as much as they can about this. Um, You had mentioned that we have, you know, a number of sessions that we offer. Many of them are required. Um, So bystander training last semester was required, uh, last year, sorry, last um, academic year, and also a session called... um, developing your toolkit, your diversity toolkit. So again, sort of taking thing from, things from one level to another. We have a lot of compliance training around these types of um, you know, federal compliance issues in terms of sexual uh, harassment and, and that. Um, and also this semester we're, we're requiring, or this year we're requiring folks to go through two sessions. Now, you know, some of it, it talks about diversity, but diversity covers so many topics, accessibility, um, gender, sexual orientation. Um, it could be, you know, it, it really could be, you know, faculty and staff of color, um, anybody, you know, we all have something that sort of falls into the we're different from everybody else because of X. Um, but for some people, that is much more intense than others, and that feeling is much more intense. So we want to provide the right type of training for everyone who can support those people. And I really like to push, take a few minutes to read, even if it's just sort of a scan read of the policy, because my suggestion is to take the training classes, read the policy, so that when you do find yourself in that situation, you're not standing there saying, oh my gosh, what do I do? Instead, you say, okay, I'm prepared. I know what I should do in this situation. That's my my best point of advice. It's about education and empowerment. And prevention. And prevention, that's right. Well, thank you so much, Lily. I really appreciate you coming in here and talking about a really difficult and confusing topic. I think this will really help a lot of people. I'd love to have it back again um, some other time. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, and I'd love to come back. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.